0: If you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to join me in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. This is a very personal letter that the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy is his protege. I don't just believe in the faith. I think that the Apostle Paul took a great interest in his life, wanted to impact him on many levels, and does so. And as I read these verses this morning, I personally am arrested by two words. They are somewhat unfamiliar in our modern day conversation, but they are vitally important. And I want to begin reading in verse 1, and if you don't have your Bible, you'll note that the verses are available here on the screen for you. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Two words in there that arrest my attention are the two words, unfeigned faith. They are striking to me, one, because I don't really understand what unfeigned is. And so I have to do a little work, and when I go to the dictionary, which can help you a lot with words, I learn this about the word unfeigned. It is sincere, wholehearted. In fact, it implies the absence of hypocrisy. Devotion without any reservation. Can you imagine faith without hypocrisy? Can you imagine a faith so strong and pure that it is devotion without reservation? That it is wholehearted. That's strong faith. Communicated in these verses, the apostle is telling us that it's actually a family trait. It was first in Lois and then in Eunice and now in him. So I step back and I imagine that they worked to accomplish this in Timothy's life. That the Apostle Paul is coming alongside of them and he is exhorting and encouraging Timothy to stay strong. Have this unfeigned faith. We all have a tendency to look at the generation behind us with some envy or disdain. We look back at times and we envy the strength and the energy of youth. And if you are at any age beyond the age of 29, you know what I'm talking about. Or we look back and we begin to look upon the generations behind us with disdain. If you are after the age of 49, you know what I'm talking about. We wonder what kind of world will we leave them. And even more, what will they do with the world that they are left? And I say to you, what scripture is pointing us to is this awareness and understanding. We can have a great impact on the generation that is coming behind us if we will be intentional about doing so in a positive way. It's a way of life unfeigned faith. It's a family trait that can be accomplished. We are constantly harassed by fear. We live in a world of chaos and confusion. We're assaulted by faithlessness on all levels. And here, Paul is trying to address this with Timothy. And and here's what I think is simply being communicated. Timothy, you can do it. That's some of the greatest encouragement that you will ever hear. We start it when our kids are little and they're taking their first steps. You can do it. You may remember when they began to ride their bike and they were on their own without training wheels and you would exhort them and encourage them with those words, you can do it. But at some point along the way, we stop communicating that to the generation behind us and we cease communicating that to each other. And then we arrive at a passage of scripture like this and we are reminded that we should be busy exhorting and encouraging each other that we can do it. And it's all done here in the context of family. Even as we read in verse 2, Paul said, Timothy, you are my dearly beloved son. Paul exerted a great amount of influence on Timothy. I am helped when I learn about Timothy in Scripture. Timothy was fear-filled. Timothy was, we could use the word, a reticent young man. He was an introvert. Maybe that's how we'd say it today. But he had an incredibly demanding task, and it coincided with a great opportunity, which is typically how it works. And what he needs from the Apostle Paul, and what he needs to be reminded of, is that God can deliver him. In essence, what he needed was encouragement. If there is anything that we can learn from the pastoral epistles that are within Scripture, it is this, that even the most faithful servants of the Lord need to be encouraged. Even the person to your right and to your left, in front of you and behind you. Everybody needs that encouragement. And sometimes we're really wrapped up in ourselves and we pass off, we excuse, we rationalize our lack of investment in others because of what we have on our plates. Because of what we have going on internally. Because of what we are up against. But may I remind you that as the Apostle Paul writes this very letter he was in prison, Can I remind you that as he was imprisoned, this letter is framed by his impending death? Can I tell you that emotionally speaking, it's an urgent letter because he's lonely? Even in here he says, I greatly desire to see you, Timothy. I remember how you cried when I left, and I long to be reunited with you and your family. He talks about how he's abandoned. He writes, all they which are in Asia are turned away from me. He'll write, only Luke is with me. He'll write, Demas has forsaken me. He's cold. He even asks Timothy to bring a cloak, a coat which he had left in Troas so that he could warm up. He's restless. He's asking for the books and the parchments which he left behind. He's certain that he's at the end of his life, that his hours are literally running out. I have finished my course. I have run my race. If anybody had something inside going on, it was the Apostle Paul. If anybody had a full plate emotionally speaking, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet he gives to Timothy a father's encouragement. Now I know this, he was not Timothy's birth father. And what we know of Timothy's birth father is that he was a Greek. And that's what we know of him it indicates perhaps that his father is no longer on the scene and in Lystra, which is in central Turkey, where he is living, Timothy with Lois and Eunice and the Apostle Paul comes and he preaches the gospel message that Timothy is saved. And there he is introduced to the Apostle Paul and he will travel with Paul on missionary journeys and he will help in Thessalonica and at this moment in time he's pastoring the church at Ephesus. What I understand is this, God can use anybody from any family environment. But what stands out to me greatly is that the Apostle Paul, as a man who had a lot going on, emotionally and practically speaking, still took the time to invest in a young man and communicate a father's encouragement. Timothy pastoring the church at Ephesus had a really hard job. Spiritually speaking, I'll say it to you this way, there were a lot of theological jerks that attended the church at Ephesus. False teachers were invading from all sides, and he was in the midst of conflict and turmoil. I personally believe that he dealt with anxiety, being the reticent young man who was somewhat introverted. And so Paul says, take a little wine for thy stomach's sake. I know they've ulcered you up. I know you don't think you can do it. I know you feel like you can't stand, but I want you to know you can do it. And here's how he encourages him. He points him to his own faithfulness. Notice what he writes in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience. He is encouraging this young man like a father. And in order to encourage him, he says to him, as I look back across my life and ministry, as I remember my conversion and the thousands of sermons that I've preached and all the letters that I've written, As I think back on the times when I was shipwrecked and I was beaten and I was stoned and left for dead, as I think about those nights that aren't that far back in the past as I am imprisoned now, I look back and I can say this with assurance, I have been faithful to serve God. I didn't quit. This is simple application. Do you know the only way that you can have the testimony of not quitting? don't quit. And I don't think he's saying to Timothy with a chip on his shoulder or a condescending tone, you can't quit because I didn't quit. I believe the Apostle Paul is saying to him, you're not in this alone. I'm here battling with you. I exhort you to stay in it. I encourage you that you can do it. And I want you to know that you are not alone. And when you feel your strength failing, and you note that your energy is waning, and you begin to grow weary, remember that I'm in it with you. And remember when you grow weary in well-doing to keep your eyes on Jesus, who even bore the indignity of the cross, this savage execution, of the cross, because he kept his eyes on God. Encouragement that you're not alone. Encouraged by your own faithfulness. I note this in the second part of verse 3. He prayed for him. Without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Here's more simple application. Not only did he pray for him ceaselessly, he told him that he prayed for him. Those seem like flippant words a lot of times. Hey, I'm praying for you. They seem flippant to us because when we say them, we don't actually mean them. But when the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I know that life is hard. I know that it is complex. I know you are in the midst of a society of chaos and confusion. I know that you feel like you are standing all alone. I know that all the false teachers are pressing in from all sides and you feel like you are young and ill-equipped. You can do it. I'm here with you, and I'm here for you, and I'm praying for you ceaselessly. And then I note what he says in verse 6. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance, that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee. We need to hear what Paul tells Timothy. He tells Timothy, rekindle. Stir up like you would stir up the embers of a fire that's about to go out. The gift that God has given you. He has called you, Timothy. Don't take your eye off the ball. You have been gifted to serve. Don't quit now. He is offering him the encouragement of a father by pointing to his own faithfulness. By reminding him that he is praying for him ceaselessly. And he is exhorting him to stay in the game. Sometimes people just need to be reminded that God has gifted and equipped them to serve. And when pressure comes, and certainly it does, and the energy begins to fail, and we begin to wonder if we're having an impact or making any difference, someone can come alongside and say, you can do it, don't forget that God has called you and God has equipped you. He exhorts him, he encourages him by literally cheering him on. We fail at that far too often. Just telling someone, you can do it. You can make it. You go to your kid's sporting event, you remember the anxiety that you felt as you cheered them on? I can remember when my son played little league baseball and he was a catcher. Little league kids don't throw a good ball, so there's a lot of passed balls, a lot of wild pitches. I hated when he played catcher, hated it. Because it constantly put him in position to fail. And then other parents are looking at you like another passed ball. And you're like, well, if your kid could throw the ball, wouldn't get past him. Your kid's hitting the top of the cage, man. But you hit the glove. You hit the glo-. And then parents are fighting. You know that stress that you feel when your kid walks to the plate and he's standing there with a bat and he looks at you like, what's up, dad? And you're like, I'm dying inside. That's what's up. That's what's up. And he's up there at the plate and all you want, all you want, every fiber of your being is please hit the ball. And then he gets beamed by a pitch and he's down on first base. And you're like, well, I mean, he's there. (laughs) At least he didn't strike out. There is a sense of, of pressure. There's a sense of internal anxiety. It's almost palpable how much you are rooting for success in that child. And here is the Apostle Paul. He is looking at somebody else in the faith. It's not his own flesh and blood, but he knows that we need him to be in the game. He knows we need him to weather the storm at the church at Ephesus. He knows we need him in the cause of Christ. And he's a little weak right now. He's a little beat up. He's feeling outnumbered. He's overwhelmed. And this Apostle, this old war horse, who has been through more battles than you can shake a stick at, and if he walked into the church at Ephesus, everybody would cower in fear. But he's not walking through that door. It's up to the next generation. It's Timothy's church. It's Timothy's battle now. And Paul, with the anxiety of a parent, says to him, you can do it. You're not alone. I'm praying for you. Stir up the gift and stay after it. How much do we need to hear that from each other? Cheerlead for each other. You realize that's what's going to happen when we get home to heaven. And we hear, well done. And we are applauded upon our entrance. You realize that's what happens when we are saved by our faith in Jesus Christ. And heaven rejoices in that. Why can we not exhort each other along the way? Not only do I note a father's encouragement. In verse 5, I see he had his mother's example. When I call to remembrance, here's what I remember. I remember you have that devotion without reservation in you. And I know it dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and thy mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Other than having great names, Lois and Eunice, and they have great names, and I feel like they could cook. Do you feel like, I mean, like a woman named Eunice can cook. I feel like Timothy ate okay in the house. Other than just being a grandma and a mom, here's what we know from the scripture. They had unfeigned faith as well. They also had devotion without reservation. And Paul is saying to him, Timothy, here's what I know to be true about you. I know it's in you. And I want you to remember that it is an heritage that you have received. I want you to remember that this is something that has been gifted. It has been instilled in you. The beginning of Timothy's education Theologically speaking, did not begin in seminary, nor did it begin when the apostle Paul took him under his wing. But we read this later in this letter, 2 Timothy 3, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus." That indicates to me that there were intentional times of teaching truth. That communicates to me that that Lois and Eunice put the word of God into the life of Timothy. How necessary is that? This world is confusing. These times are perilous. Of that there is no doubt. Everyone wants to be healed of inner conflicts, don't they? Everybody wants to be able to cope. Everybody wants to be able to handle life. And that's what this book is for. I don't mean that it erases problems, but I mean it equips us to navigate the rocky road that we will travel in life. If we want the next generation to be able to navigate life in a God-honoring way, they need the truth of God instilled in them. Timothy had a godly heritage. Grandmom. And mom, who lived it and taught it and communicated it to him. It wasn't a perfect home environment, but it had the word of God. And then as he gets to verse 7, he writes to him, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I don't know any statement in Paul's writing that is more practically important to us than that one. Because I think all of us are oppressed and assaulted by a spirit of fear most of the time. Anxiety is real. Worry is real. Trembling about what's going to happen. A sense of terrible disaster looming. Chaos and crisis that's about to break on us. And this verse says that's not from God. And and when he says God has not given us a spirit of fear, I don't think it's because Timothy was in front of the mirror flexing his muscles and saying, I'm fearless. I think it is because Timothy was controlled by and dominated by fear. And the apostle steps up to him and says, get this, man, that spirit of fear that is dominating you and that is keeping you from navigating life, that does not come from God. That does not come from Him. That spirit which is keeping you pinned down and your emotion and your fervency for the calling and the gifting that God has given to you which is beginning to die out. That fear that has gripped you is not from God but here is what is from God. Here's the spirit's effect on your life. You have the spirit of power. It doesn't mean you feel powerful all the time but you have the spirit of power which we intersect When the blood of Jesus Christ washes away our sin and we are quickened to life by the Holy Spirit, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and he defeats in us the power of sin and the power of death which once held sway on us and now, according to the word of God, we are hyper-victorious. We are super conquerors. We have the ability to overcome sin as we yield to the Holy Spirit. That's what he's trying to get Timothy to see. You don't have to live a life of defeat. You have the spirit of power and of love. I have to think in Timothy's mind, as he aches, as he senses his passion for the ministry beginning to wane. He has faces in his mind, I have no doubt. And he thinks, if that guy would just go, it would be easier. And if that lady would just stop, it would be better. And if these people wouldn't keep bringing this doctrine and I wouldn't have to fight so hard... He says to him, you have the spirit of love that comes from God. That's on other people. That dictates your attitude. Do you realize, according to 1 Corinthians 13, all ministry minus love amounts to zero? And what he's trying to get Timothy to sense is this. Fear makes you hate Fear makes you antagonistic. Fear makes you irritable. But that's not from God. You have the spirit of power and you have the spirit of love and you have the spirit of a sound mind. That doesn't indicate to me fanaticism. That's not talking constantly about dreams and visions and all these kinds of things, but rather it's a sober, realistic appraisal of a situation and deciding to do the right thing. It's a steadfastness, it's a quietness, and it's sound judgment. You can do it, Timothy, and the Spirit will help you know how. You can navigate this. How in the world do you parent? How in the world do you hand the next generation something worthy of stepping into? What do they do with it when they get it? We cannot answer all of those questions as layered as they are, but here's what we do know. If we can encourage someone that is coming behind us by our faithfulness, not with a condescending spirit, not with a chip on our shoulder, but if we can invest in them, if we will pray and communicate that we are praying, if we will exhort them that they can do it, if we will live out our lives in such a way that we live right and we teach right, if we encourage them that spirit of fear that you sense, That impending doom of the unknown, the chaos and the confusion around you, that fear that dominates you and causes you to live angry and irritable and defeated and to seem like the outlook is dark, that is not from God. But what is from God is a spirit of power. You can do it. A spirit of love. You can have the right attitude in how you do it and a sound mind. You can actually exercise the discernment necessary to arrive at the desired destination. I get weary of being told it can't be done anymore. I get weary of acting like the post-Christian society that we live in is a death knell for effective ministry or families or lives. That's not true. And here are the words we simply need to hear. You can do it. I wish when I was younger there were more people around me that told me, you can do it. As I age in ministry, and I am now an exceedingly old man, I'm just really handsome for 75. When you don't laugh, it makes me feel a little arrogant when I say stuff like that. I don't think I'm handsome, and I'm not 75. I'm 33. I realize that I have to invest in the generation that is behind me. And that requires an intentional attitude. Who are you ministering to? You say, well, I've got my plate full. Yeah, well, you're not in prison, isolated and abandoned, freezing cold and restless. You can reach out to somebody. You say, well, I've got kids in my house, and that's where I'm pouring my life. Great, invest. Be an example. Live right and teach right. Make sure they understand that they can do it, and they don't have to be dominated and controlled by fear, and they don't have to capitulate to the chaos and the confusion. They can do it. They can have discernment. They can have the right attitude. They can overcome because they have the Holy Spirit. And if you're beyond that phase, find somebody that you can pray for and communicate to that you're praying for. We're all in this together. That's the beauty of these seven verses. No one's alone. We're all family here. Cheer each other on to the finish line. Would you please bow your heads for just a moment?